0: Good morning, people of God. We praise our Father this morning for another time to gather in His presence in the name of Christ. We come, not just in general, to worship God or a God, we come to worship our God and Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come in His name. So I pray this morning that your heart is filled with joy over Christ, that you have Given thought on your way to church this morning as we've gone through the service that you have given thought to what he has done for us, uh, to what he has purchased for us, to his great sacrifice, the wrath that he bore in our place. We're here to celebrate him, to exalt him, to enjoy him. So I pray that your heart is turned this morning to Christ as we come to his word. You know, the word without Christ is nothing. The Word is about Christ. It points to Christ. Christ is exalted in His Word. And so as we come this morning to be instructed by the Scriptures, we recognize that what we are really coming to do is to fix our gaze on Christ as we feast on His Word. As Jesus Himself said when He was tempted, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God and we know that Jesus called himself the bread of life. We feast on this written word and through that we feast on the bread of life. So if you would please go with me in your Bibles to Exodus 14, that is our morsel this morning of food from God's word as we are his sheep who feed in his pasture. We've come as a church this morning to Exodus 14 and we will be in verses 1 to 14. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the exodus from Egypt. Pharaoh has driven the Israelites out of Egypt. The Egyptians have given the Israelites all of this jewelry, gold and silver and fine clothing, so they've heaped them up with wealth. So the slave people are not leaving as Uh, poor slaves, but they are leaving as the richest of the rich. As the Israelites move out of Egypt with the favor of the Egyptians and with the wealth of Egypt. And God has given them ordinances for remembering the exodus throughout their generations. So these are gifts. And we talked about that, how God's commands are a gift to us. And God commands his people to keep these ordinances. Ordinances, these requirements, these statutes. And these statutes themselves will function in the hearts of God's people and within their families, they will function as a grace that holds them fast to the Lord. So God gives them these ordinances so that they would remember the Lord and so that they would enjoy the Lord as His people. Now, Israel is on the move, which is what we looked at last week. And we saw three things last week in chapter 13, verses 17 to 22, as Israel is on the move. So I just want to take a moment and briefly uh, go back over these. So they leave, the Israelites leave as soldiers. Israel leaves as an army. Verse 18 says, "...they went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle." Uh, And the word there is not really, it doesn't really connote uh, the idea of having weapons. It it, it more has to do with their organization. They go out in military formation, as it has been translated. Uh, But God does not lead them into battle. So we talked about that last week. It's interesting how they go out as an army. They go out ordered and organized as the hosts of the Lord, the armies of the Lord, And yet, God, in his consideration and protection, in his grace towards them, he He leads them a different way other than the way of the Philistines. So, he could have taken them a direct route north into Canaan and they would have had to face the Philistines. But God does not do that. He does not lead his people out of consideration for their weakness, out of consideration for them. He does not lead them directly into battle. They are nonetheless leaving as soldiers. They leave as an army. They also leave with a powerful symbol. So we saw the soldiers last week, also the symbol. They leave with Joseph's bones. These bones serve as a powerful symbol of three things. The connection to the patriarchs the faithfulness of God to his promises. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Isaac and to Jacob and to Jacob's 12 sons, including Joseph. And now he is being faithful still. The Lord is faithful. The God of Abraham, the God who gave Abraham a son from his wife Sarai, is the God who is bringing his people out of Egypt and he is the God who will bring his people into the promised land. He's the God who will be with his people all along. So these bones function as a symbol of God's faithfulness and finally they function as a symbol of faith. Uh, This is what the Israelites are called to. They are called to put their trust in God's faithfulness. Uh, Above all we trust in God's faithfulness. Our faith is in his Faithfulness, we trust in the God of promise. Paul makes this clear in Romans 4 when he holds up Abraham as the great example, the great illustration of faith. He's the father of faith. And what is it that Abraham trusted in? He trusted in God's promises. And so we see that where there is the faithful God, there must be the people of faith. It is who we are. And so the bones function. As a symbol of Joseph's faith. And a symbol of the faith that all, all of God's people are called to live out as they move with the Lord into the promised land. And finally, they leave with God as their shepherd. Not only does the Lord lead them away from early war, which they cannot handle. But he also goes with them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire By night, an amazing picture, a vivid picture of God's presence. And and we talked last week about how we don't have a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire. You didn't wake up this morning and look out your window and and see a massive cloud. And tonight, uh, when you go to bed, you won't open your blinds or whatever and look out and see a fireball in the sky to remind you of God's presence. But God has given us his spirit. His spirit has Stan prayed earlier, lives within us. His spirit is a seal and a pledge and a guarantee. His spirit tells us that we belong to him and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So that's where we ended last week, verses 21 to 22, with this pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. I want to read those verses to you. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And then I love this last sentence. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. It was dependable. God's presence was reliable. They knew that God would not leave them. And that's the same confidence that the Lord calls us to this morning as we reflect on that. That God's not going to leave us. He doesn't leave us no matter what the circumstances are. No matter how hard life is. uh, No matter how we fall and bump our foreheads on the concrete. All the ways that we mess up. All of the ways that we sin in disobedience to God. The Lord is faithful. And he will not leave us his people. Last week, we finished up with the people at Atham. And I want to point you again to this map. I've had this up repeatedly. This is a map of the Exodus route. And it shows the route that the Israelites would have left Egypt. And it goes down all the way to the Yom Suf, or the Red Sea, as it's traditionally been translated. Uh, In Hebrew, the Yom Suf, which the reason I use that is because uh, it's a debated topic as to how to translate that. Uh, And it has historically been the Red Sea connected down south to the larger body body of water called the Red Sea. But in Scripture, this body of water, Yom Suf, is always depicted as the Gulf of Aqaba, what we know today as the Gulf of Aqaba. So they've moved from Ramses and Goshen to Sukkoth. And then from Sukkoth to encamp at Atham. And you see Atham there next to the Yom Suf. They are moving forward across the Sinai Peninsula toward the mountain of God in Midian. In Arabia, remember what God told Moses. I will bring you back to this mountain. And we know that the mountain is in the Midianite country, which is in Arabia. And so the Lord is bringing his people back to Midian. He is bringing them back. Horeb to Mount Sinai to the place where he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. As we read last week, God is leading the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And that's where we pick up this morning. Here we are near the Red Sea, near the Yom Suf, the Gulf of Aqaba. Just want to revisit that huge quote that I gave you last week, and that was by an um, Old Testament scholar and a Hebrew grammarian uh, who's written a, a commentary on Exodus. And I just want to read the, don't, don't worry, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but I want to read the first and the last sentence just so you can see the confidence that he has regarding the placement of uh, the, the Yom Suf. He says, one cannot get, this is Dwayne Garrett, by the way, one cannot get away from the fact That the Bible identifies only one body of water as the Yom Suf, the Gulf of Aqaba. And then he gives all of this stuff, which I read to you last week. And then he says, the evidence is not ambiguous. And the Bible never suggests that more than one body of water is called Yom Suf. So we see there the Gulf of Aqaba, the place where the Israelites would have crossed what is traditionally known as the Red Sea. So the title for the sermon this morning is God's Glory at the Sea, part one. So we're going to work our way through chapter 14, and today we're going to take on those first 14 verses, so just part one, God's Glory at the Sea. We have come to the beginning of what might be the most famous story in the Bible, the parting of the Red Sea. And what we need to see as we get going is that it is all about God's glory, That's what this story is about. God's glory in saving. God's glory in judging. This is our focal point as Christians. deo gloria. We are all about the glory of God. That's why we exist. That's why we woke up this morning. That's why God has, has, has seen fit to keep us in his world. Why is it that we're still here? Why are we still alive today? We know people die every day. Why haven't we? Why haven't you died up to this point? For the glory of God. That's why we still live and move and have our being in this world. That's the focal point of all existence. That is the focal point of the entire Bible. And where do we find this glory? We see it in these stories in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. We see these great stories of God's glory being seen, being expressed. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6 tells us where we find this glory. For God, who said let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. Now listen, this is a description of you if you're a Christian. This is just something to marvel at, something to praise God for. We're not just sitting here this morning, people just living our lives. This is a reality, what I'm about to read. This is a reality for you if you are a born-again, blood-bought Christian. If you belong to Christ, he says, the God who has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. If you're a Christian this morning, you have seen, not one time, but you are seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as the love of God has been poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We experience God's glory every second of every day because we have come to see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Christian sees what those at the Red Sea did not see. We have the spirit of the exalted Christ in us, moment by moment, enjoying the glory of God in his very face. If you would go ahead and stand with me as we read our passage for today, Exodus 14 verses 1 to 14. By the way, We don't just come to know Christ out of thin air. We don't just imagine who Christ is. We come to know Christ through the scriptures. That's how we know of him. That's how we see his glory is through the written word. We come to see the eternal I am word. The word who became incarnate. Exodus chapter 14 verses 1 to 14. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of pi between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-tsephone, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly or with a heavy, I mean, with an exalted or high hand. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth, in front of Baal zephon When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh. They said to Moses, "'Is it because there are no graves in Egypt?' That you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Oh, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm. And see. The salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. You can be seated. There are words in Scripture that are just so powerful and moving, and I think of David's words to Goliath, some of my favorite words in the Bible, and these also, these wonderful words packed with confidence and faith in the Lord. This passage that introduces the Red Sea miracle gives us two parts. That's what we're going to look at this morning. You can go ahead and put those up on the screen. A setup for salvation, verses 1 to 9, and a call to confidence, verses 10 to 9. To 14. But before we look at that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask for his blessing on our time and his word. Let's ask that he would illuminate his holy scriptures, that he would show us Christ. Remember, the, the Jews in Jesus' day, Jesus said to them uh, that they think they have salvation in the, in the written word, but the written word points to Christ. And so let's pray that God would exalt Christ, his son in our hearts this morning as we think about his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these inspired, inerrant, infallible, precious, sufficient, necessary, clear, authoritative words. We thank you that you have given them to us as a precious treasure greater than much fine gold, and sweeter than honey. Lord, we ask that you would show us the, the truth of Romans 15, 4, that these things are written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Lord, would you fill our hearts with hope in you? Would you encourage us uh, to endure? Would you instruct us? Lord, would you train us in righteousness and reprove us uh, as we come to your scripture this morning. God, we pray that it will be explained clearly and that it would be heard with a willing heart. That we would want to obey you promptly and fully. Lord, we pray that we would obey you because we love you. uh, Because we thank you. Because we see you your glory, because we've come to taste that you are good, and that you are so much better than all the idols that we could cling to. Father, would you show us Christ this morning? Would you show us our great need for him as we consider our own sinfulness and his perfection? Lord, as we see your glory at the Red Sea, we pray that we would just raise our Voices that we would raise our hands, raise our hearts to praise you. God, how we see your incredible power, your incredible love and faithfulness at the Red Sea. And Lord, as we think of that great event in biblical history, would our minds be immediately drawn to Calvary where the greatest event of the universe, the greatest event of biblical history, of human history took place where your son gave his life us. Lord, would you guide us through this service? Would you be honored? Would we be edified? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So a setup for salvation and a call to confidence. Let's start with verses 1 to 9 with a setup for salvation. So here the people are moving forward. Here they are going forward, going in a direction that makes some sense, all right? You wonder, you know, 2 to 2.5 million people, which is the number I, I think there were of the Israelites there coming out of Egypt. And all of these different people, you know, it would, it would be interesting to go through if we could and ask each person, what are you thinking about? What are you, what are you perceiving? How are you processing all of this? We don't know how they would have been thinking, but at least the direction that they are going in and have been going into this point makes some sense. But then the Lord issues a command. Look at verses 1 to 2. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pehahiroth between Migdol and the sea in front of baal you shall encamp facing it by the sea Now you may just read through that and go that's just a bunch of funny words uh, I'm not really sure what's going on there well the Lord tells the people through Moses to turn back to turn away from their forward motion, to turn away from their forward path. And you saw how long they've been traveling there on the map. They've been traveling for quite a ways, going in one direction, and all of a sudden they are told to turn back, to turn away from the direction they've been going in which would most naturally continue north of the Gulf of Aqaba into Arabia. That, that would be the natural path, right? They're going across this way of the wilderness, which, by the way, was a well-known route in the ancient world. It was a, a pathway that you could travel, not the way of the sea up into Canaan through Philistine country, but the way of the wilderness. It's an actual uh, sort of a traffic route, like I-85 kind of, kind of place. So they're going through, and all of a sudden... Instead of going forward, going north above the Yam into Arabia, the Lord tells them to turn in a different direction, a much less seemingly productive direction. And not only that, but he tells them to encamp by the sea. So he tells them to turn away from the path that's going to lead them naturally to the place uh, that makes some sense. And he tells them to turn and encamp by the sea. In other words, the Lord tells them to become hemmed in by the sea. He tells them, essentially, to trap themselves. Without any need or reason to turn back and encamp by the sea, the Lord commands them to do so. They must trust his guidance even when it makes no sense. Now think about that for our lives. It shouldn't really surprise us when life doesn't make any sense. We like for things to make sense. We like to be able to see uh, cause and effect relationships. We like to be able to see natural succession We like to be able to see uh, steps that are orderly. Some of us more so than others, but we like that. It gives us a sense of stability. It gives us a sense of confidence, something we can hold on to. We really don't like it when things don't make any sense. But what we need to see here is that it should not surprise us when life doesn't make sense. This is one of the ways that God works with his people. This is the life of faith following the shepherd. The shepherd leads his sheep. And he doesn't always lead his sheep in the way that the sheep, us, think he should. I would do it this way, Lord. I I think this is going to be the 10-year plan, and I really would like for you to stick to that plan. This is my itinerary, Lord, and I want you to keep me on this path. And what, what do we do in life? Most of our prayers are, God, get me back on my own itinerary. Right? Isn't that what happens when we pray to the Lord? We cry out to God, and we're saying, oh, Lord, get me back on my path. And the Lord says, that's, that's, not, that's not the path. That, that's not the path for you. Shouldn't surprise us When it doesn't make sense. We are on a pilgrimage. This life of faith is filled with opportunities for us to trust in the faithful God when things don't make sense. All the opportunities we have. We see these as obstacles. All of these things that we face in life that make us uncomfortable or that make us confused. We see them as obstacles, that we need to pray for God to overcome or to topple over. That's the prosperity gospel at work in our theology. And it's infiltrated all of our hearts. We see it in our prayers. These are opportunities for us to trust God. It is easy to trust God when our path and his path line up. It's when the two diverge that faith is tested. Consider Abraham in Genesis 22, uh, God tells him to go and sacrifice his son, the one he had waited a quarter of a century to have, the one upon whom all the promises rested, and now God tells him to sacrifice his son? Did it make sense? And of course we know that it was never God's intention for Abraham to do that, but he walked in faith. And that is what we today as God's people must do. What we find here is that the people obey at the end of verse 4, and they did so. And I think we are to understand here that uh, God's grace is working to restrain the people's sin. We know that the people who left Egypt are in a bad way. Uh, We know that from Hebrews, the way that Hebrews reflects on this wilderness generation We know what they are about to do. We're going to read in a moment. We know what they continue to do in their grumbling and their lack of trust in God. It is only by God's grace that they listen at this point, that they do what God has commanded them to do. It becomes clearer what God is doing when we come to verses 3 to 4. Look with me there. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, or that I am the Lord. The text doesn't tell us how Pharaoh is staying informed of Israel's movements. Uh, We're just not given that kind of detail. Perhaps there are scouts or lookout soldiers who have been reporting back Uh, Maybe people along the way who are reporting nomads along the way, reporting back, knowing some of the Egyptians. We're just not told how Pharaoh is aware of this. Whatever the case, it comes to Pharaoh's attention that the Israelites are in a precarious situation. They appear to be wandering around aimlessly, without logical direction, and they are trapped. You just imagine the mocking laughs of Pharaoh and his servants and his magicians. Maybe Yahweh has abandoned them. Uh, maybe they're just sort of out there, this massive group of people, wandering around and their God, the God of the Hebrews, has a changed course. He stopped watching over them. Maybe Yahweh has done all he will do for this slave people. You know, gods in the ancient world were seen as unpredictable, and they could turn on a dime and uh, be with a people, and that's why they had to constantly be appeased and coerced into doing the will of the people. Uh, No surprise, these ancient gods are like people. Because right, that's all they were. They were figments of man's imagination. A man makes gods in his own image. And so that's what all of them were. They were just like really big, strong people who have thunderbolts and control storms and so forth. They're just huge people. Unpredictable as we are. Maybe Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has changed his mind. The point here is that the placement of the people leads to a certain perception on the part of Pharaoh. God is depicted here as a master trapper. Notice this. He sets up the bait for Pharaoh to come and bite. And the irony is that while Pharaoh thinks Israel is trapped, it is Israel's God who is trapping him. They are shut in. By the wilderness, they are trapped by the sea. I'm going to devour them. I'm going to take them, bait taken. Now the Lord God of Israel will trap this wicked king. God will draw him out and harden his heart so that he will pursue Israel in their seemingly vulnerable state. Why? The Lord gives the reason to Moses at the end of verse 4. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. That's the reason. God is glorifying himself. God is exalting himself over Pharaoh and over the gods of Pharaoh, the gods of Egypt. And he is showing himself to be the only God to. Egyptians. In other words, God will provide a reality check. And think about this for a moment. You know, you think about God glorifying Himself in all of these ways throughout the Bible, and just what is God doing? It's multifaceted what God is doing. We know that God does everything for His own glory. There is no higher end in the universe, period. But also, God provides a reality check by glorifying Himself. He will turn Eyes away from idols. The Egyptians are fixated on gods who are not gods. They worship gods who are no gods at all. And the Lord is gracious in his judgment. Think about it for a moment. The Lord judges in order that human beings who are enslaved to idolatry, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, who are darkened in mind and heart, He glorifies himself in judgment in order to show those people, in order to show all people that he alone is God and that the idols in whom they trust can do nothing for them. He will turn eyes away from idols. He will show himself to be the one and only living God who judges sinners. So God is doing all of this for his own glory. Uh, Some people talk about God's hardening as though God's just watching Pharaoh. And and Pharaoh decides. And and, and then God acts. and, And Pharaoh makes another decision. And then God responds. That's a puny God. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is entirely sovereign over every speck of dust and over every human heart. And what we read here is a God who is sovereignly working, just as he did with Joseph's brothers, to carry out his purposes. And yet Pharaoh is responsible for his rebellion, for his sin, for his cruelty, and for his denial of the true God. And of course, what God does works. Look at verses 5 And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Hahiroth, in front of Baal Zephon. Change of heart, mobilization, pursuit, that's what we read here. And this change of heart is very interesting. Of course, we know that God is sovereign over what is going on, but, but we still recognize the, the natural things going on in Pharaoh's heart, and we recognize Pharaoh's culpability, as I said before. And when we see this change of heart, it is interesting because it shows us the tenacity of sin. Rebellion and pride. Remember when the Lord warns Cain. Whoa, Cain. Whoa. Stop. Watch. If you do good, will you not be accepted? But sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. You must master it. You must rule over it. No, says Cain. I will kill my brother. Sin breeding more sin The tenacity of sin, rebellion, and pride can be seen here in Pharaoh's change of heart. They have just buried all of their firstborn children. And now they are ready to face off again with Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, or with the people of Yahweh, come what may. They're they're recharged in their sin. They're recharged and ready to go out again. They've just buried their little ones and their older ones and all their sacred animals, or many of their sacred animals. They've just seen the power of Yahweh over life and death. What greater power is there? The tenacity of sin. What we need to recognize is that this level of folly is in the heart of every sinner. This folly is in your heart. It is in my heart. This folly is in each of us. We are self-destructive by nature. It's not just the person who commits suicide who is self-destructive. It's not just the person who who becomes addicted to various substances who is self-destructive. We are all self-destructive by nature. Because the the sin within us is tenacious. It is powerful. We love our sin to such a degree that we will defy all logic in order to feast on it. We will ruin our jobs. We will ruin our marriages. We will ruin our homes. We will ruin our churches to have our sin, to have what we want to exercise our own love of pleasure or self-exaltation. This is the power of sin. Praise God that as Paul says in Romans 6, sin will have no dominion over you through Christ. If you're in Christ this morning, sin, this powerful thing, this powerful force that is in us, whatever we are to call it, however we are to understand it, in our intellect, in our will, in our affections, in our our bodies carrying itself out, it will not have dominion over the Christian. And as we read last week, in every moment of temptation, the Lord provides a way of escape. But you need to know this this morning. If you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ You are enslaved to this self-destructive, tenacious power within your own heart. And it will ultimately destroy you. It will ultimately lead to hell. The only way to be free of sin is to trust in the sin sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to be free of this powerful sin is to trust in Christ's blood to cover our sins, and the power of His Spirit to give us a new heart. Following this change of heart, our mobilization and pursuit, the center of Pharaoh's force is this group of 600 elite chariots. This is the core. It's it's not entirely clear who all is there and how this mass of, of force is coming out, but we see at the center of it is this group of 600 elite chariots, probably carrying two men each, one in charge of the horses and one in charge of the weapons, and, and with officers placed over groups of these chariots. And there's debate over how to translate these various words and how to understand exactly what this military force looks like. But what we are to understand here is that it is an intimidating and quickly moving force. And it wouldn't have taken long for it to reach the situation we find at the end of verse 9. Pharaoh's forces overtook them and camped at the sea. This is a, a pretty striking scenario. They've come across the Sinai Peninsula, and they have now overtaken the Israelites and camped at the sea. God is setting up his people for salvation. He is placing them in the impossible, making them entirely vulnerable so that he alone will get the glory through saving them. Uh, think about that. If if they were to to be saved any other way, then they would be able to take some of the glory for themselves, right? But God puts them in the most precarious situation, the most vulnerable situation, in a situation of utter weakness and incapability, they have an army on one side, the best trained, most powerful army using the best technology of that day on one side. And a sea, not a little lake, but a sea on the other side. God will have the glory. Similarly, when we realize our situation before God saved us, he gets all the glory. Listen to this, Christian. Be under no illusion that you were just moving around through your life and you woke up one day and you said, you know, I'm going to start loving God now. I'm going to start fearing God now. I'm going to start trusting God now. That never happened. What God did is he gave you a new heart. He said, let light shine out of darkness. And he shone on your heart the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 2, 1 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. None of us was able out of that deadness to call on the Lord or to love the Lord or to fear the Lord or to trust the Lord or to serve the Lord. God gave us a new heart. We were born again. His spirit changed us and saved us. And now, just as Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 tells us, we look back on that and we give God all the glory. Not just part of the glory, Not just like 99.5% of the glory, but all of the glory goes to the Lord in your salvation and my salvation, just as it did at the Red Sea. All glory to God. But in truth, God's people are not vulnerable at all. They appear that way, of course, to Pharaoh who has taken the bait. But they are not vulnerable at all. Where they see a sea of water, God sees a path for them. Where they see a great undefeatable army, God sees little men whom he is about to bury in the sea. Little, tiny men. This is not the glory that we should look to. You remember when Satan takes Jesus up really high and shows him all the glory of the kingdoms of this world? You know what Christ saw? Little men, little men, with no glory. Perishable glory, ending glory, non-enduring glory. Christ saw the glory of the Father. That's forever glory. This little glory of Pharaoh, this little glory of Nebuchadnezzar, this little glory of all the kingdoms of the world, nothing before the face of God. Verse 8 tells us that the Israelites, up to this point, had been going out defiantly, literally with a high hand, that's the way the text describes them. They've been going out just sort of rejoicing and kind of feeling pumped up. Of course, they're covered in jewelry and fine clothes, and they are out in mass from their slavery. God has smashed the Egyptians for their sake. Quite a high hand indeed, but how will they respond to this new situation? A great, well-trained army on one side, and the sea on the other, And that brings us to our second point, a call to confidence. We've seen this set up for salvation, and now we come to a call to confidence. Look at verses 10 to 14. We're going to read all of those together now. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. It's interesting when you look at this description that we get three actions from the Israelites, which are then matched by three actions that Moses calls them to, essentially three and three. So let's look at the first set of three, and then we'll come back, and then we'll come at the end to the other. So, the first set of three these three actions on the part of the Israelites they cower, they cry out, and they complain. They cower, they cry out, and they complain. First, they cower. The text says they feared greatly, and this has to do with their hearts. This has to do with their minds or what is going on on the inside. This emotional, mental response to what is happening on the outside. They fear greatly. All courage, all that high-handedness melts away on the inside. Those, Those high hands become very low hands. It is as though their hearts melt away. In place of it is nothing but fear. They are are terrified of what will happen. Specifically, they think the Egyptians will now kill them. As they later say to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? The irony there is it is because of their sin and rebellion and lack of trust in God that they will die in the wilderness. God will Kill them off. They are afraid that the Egyptians will slaughter them and leave them for dead in the wilderness. This is the initial response that we often have, right? When we come across things that are unexpected, when we come across things that seem to want to do us harm, So I would say to us, people of God, be on guard against this initial response. When God does something unexpected, when God puts us in an unexpected situation, when he puts us in a vulnerable situation, be on guard. This morning, as we think about this with the Israelites, be on guard against this initial reaction. Fear. To fear greatly. That's our knee-jerk reaction. But what we need to understand is that's the knee-jerk reaction of the flesh. That's not the knee-jerk reaction of the inner man, the inner being, as Paul says, who delights in the law of the Lord, the deep, real core of who we are. This person responds in faith. So whatever it is, that diagnosis or that phone call or that news that you get, Or whatever situation looming out in the distance or that comes against us in a moment, in an unexpected moment. What's the response going to be of all of us in this room? May it not be this response of being greatly afraid. May we consider the Lord at the Red Sea. Second, they cry out, so they cower, they cry out, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, at first glance, you're reading this, it it seems positive, right? Look, they are just crying out to Yahweh, their God, to save them. Uh, They're crying out to the Lord. Is that not what we are supposed to do in times of distress? We cry out to the Lord. We're told all throughout the Psalms, all throughout Scripture, to cry out to the Lord, call out to the Lord. So it seems to be positive. And it is true, they do rightly look to Yahweh rather than some other god or or rather than just ignoring Yahweh altogether. They do cry out to the Lord. However, in light of the fear that we just read about and in light of the grumbling that we're about to see, it is difficult for me to view these words as positive. I think the picture here is one of crumbling. They are not just cowering, but they are crumbling. They basically fall apart. They collectively crumble into tears and distress in the face of this great threat. This is the natural outworking of this fleshy fear. They crumble. Third, they complain. Look at the sarcastic, mean-spirited way they speak to Moses. Look at verses 11 to 12. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. This last sentence, it would have been better shows us that their heart is not bent on worship. Follow this. The worship of Yahweh is of no concern here. It is simply not in view. All that they care about is their own welfare, their own comfort. It would have been better for our well-being if that would have continued rather than this. That would have been better. That would have been more comfortable. That would have been more beneficial. That's it. That's all that's on their minds. Remember what Jesus says about the Gentiles. This is interesting. He doesn't just say the Gentiles seek after all kinds of abominations. We know that. That's true. What does he tell his people at the end of his disciples? Those who are listening to the Sermon on the Mount. At the end of Matthew 6, he says... The Gentiles seek after all these things. What what, what do they seek after? Food? That's good. And and drink? That's good. And, And clothing? Especially in a day when your clothing meant your survival from the elements. What's so bad about that, Jesus? That's what they live for. That's what matters. What's better for me? What's more comfortable for me? What's more pleasing to me? That's All that is in view. What about us? Is that really? Do we just go through life praying for God's will so we can be happy? Man, what an indictment. Just one experience of happiness or experience of blessing after another. Lord, give me this. Thank you. Lord, give me this. Thank you. Lord, give me this. Just living like pagans. The Gentiles. The pagans, the heathens, seek after all these things. We are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, his praises, his worship. Often we are just like these Israelites, concerned only with what is better for me. So three actions, cowering crying out and complaining and these are matched by a threefold call to confidence from Moses. And this is where we're going to finish up this morning this threefold call to confidence from Moses. First, he says, "Fear not." Just like the words to Father Abraham in Genesis 15:1, "Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great." Here's Abraham, away from home, wandering around, no child afraid fear not i am your shield fear not because of who god is not because the circumstances look promising you know how many of us we we just we go through life and then everything looks promising there's something really good out there on the horizon and we are just 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 filled with confidence filled with courage filled with praise life's thank you lord life's so good But what about when when that's not what lies out there on the horizon? What about when the future does not look promising? When the circumstances are not promising, fear not. Second, stand firm. This corresponds with the second action of the Israelites. Instead of crumbling in their crying, they are to stand firm. Stand firm before their enemies. They are not to lose a heart or a posture of confidence in the Lord. Third, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. In place of complaining, they are to... Shut those mouths. They are to stop the sound from coming out of their mouths. Grumbling and grumbling and complaining and complaining and fussing. And and just, just airing discontent. Shh, shh, Moses says. Be silent. They are not called to do anything. Instead, they are just to see. To shut the mouth and open up the eyes and see, to watch their God. God will fight for them, He will eliminate their enemy, God will rescue them. They need only to be silent, only to be confident. Moses is saying to the people stop and behold our God. Behold your God, Israel. Behold the Lord, your Savior. And that's what the Lord is saying to us today. All of us gathered this morning who, by God's providence, we're here in this moment. Under this passage of scripture. Hearing from the Lord. The Lord is speaking through his word to each of our hearts. We're responsible on the day of judgment. For everything we're hearing this morning and reading from God's word. What is God saying to us? He's telling us to stop cowering, to stop crumbling, and to stop complaining, to replace all of that with confidence. Not in the circumstances getting better. They may not. Not in your own personal sense of well-being but in God and his ultimate purposes of saving us through Jesus Christ. We will probably, I imagine, spend most of our time in heaven praising God for the discomforts and difficulties of life than for any blissful thing we experience in this life. That's an eternal perspective. That's a James 1 perspective. A Philippians 4 perspective. That's the perspective of one who rejoices always, and with James in mind, who rejoices in our trials. The Lord is our shepherd. He leads us, he guides us through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for speaking to us. As we look at Exodus 14, God, we're grateful for what you've shown us about your glory there at the sea, and we anticipate seeing you do this great miracle as you part the sea and bring your people through on dry ground, and as you overwhelm the Egyptians with the water. Father, we praise you for your salvation. You are God, our Savior. Help us, Lord, not to cower when things look difficult and unpromising. Lord, help us not to crumble and just bounce from one prayer of self-centered help to another. But Lord, help us give you praise. Yes, to cry out to you in time of need. But yes, to trust you in your purposes and to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. And not to live Like pagans. Father forgive us. Forgive us for being so consumed with ourselves. So consumed with our comforts. So desirous that you make for us. The most comfortable path possible. Through this life. Give us a painless death. And see us on into glory. Father your purposes are not our purposes. We pray that we would trust you. Through any trial. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. At this time in our service, we'll have the Lord's Supper.